I want to start with back in the 1930s, really. Pope Pius XI talked about the dignity of chaste wedlock. Now, that was occasioned by the Lambeth Conference wanting to allow the use of contraception in certain circumstances within marriage for responsible couples who were married who wanted to limit the size of their families. But then Pope Paul VI, the guy here, that's Paul VI, in 1968, Humane Vitae, the famous encyclical, was, I quote, a new and deeper reflection upon the principles of moral teaching on marriage. And famously, Pope Paul VI, by virtue of the mandate entrusted to us by Christ, he said, gave his reply to the questions raised about artificial contraception, particularly the pill, by saying that contraception, sterilization, whether temporary or permanent, and abortion were, and I quote, to be absolutely excluded as illicit means of regulating birth. Now, a few months before, Father Holloway had written Chapter 22 of Catholicism, A New Synthesis, a book you can buy from Dan, who has it at the stall there, a very good book. It tells you all about the principles behind the faith movement, theological vision. A chapter he dealt with sexual control and birth control. He began by saying, it's a grief to have to speak of marriage and of married love as if the sexual act were the only thing or the main thing in life between men and women in whose lives the bond of marriage is deeply and sincerely spiritual. Now, the point I want to highlight is that in all these three, Pius XI, Paul VI and Father Holloway, and all the contemporary commentators at that time, whether they were pro-contraception or anti-contraception, what they were talking about and writing about was conjugal union, marriage, wedlock. Now, of course, where, where we are today, there's been an enormous cultural shift. Most contraception nowadays is practiced outside of marriage. And this is an enormous shift that's taken place in the last 30 years. Even where couples want to get married solemnly in the Catholic Church, most of the priests here would, would agree with me, most of the couples that we see are already living together and have been for a number of years. That's the normal thing. You're delighted and perhaps even a little surprised when somebody comes to you and they you know, so what's, what's the bride's address? You see, and you write that down. What's the groom's address? Oh, it's a different address. Gosh, you know, that's great. Because normally speaking, normally couples come, they've already been living together for some years. Probably, in my, in my own experience, probably around about 90%. And, of course, we must expect that, that, I mean, that's the percentage of people getting married solemnly in the Catholic Church. It's likely to be higher even for people who go to get married in the register office. And, indeed, we know that many people don't get married at all. That um, picture there is a, is a very good book. I recommend it to you. The Institute for the Study of Civil Society, Patricia Morgan, and she's done some research. It's, in many ways, quite a boring book, but it's, it's quite short. Um, the, the reason it's boring isn't, isn't because you know, it's not a good book, it's because it's statistics after statistics after statistics, talking about cohabitation, everything to do with cohabitation, whether those marriage, marriages which have had cohabitation preceding, whether they last longer, the incidence of child abuse in um, cohabiting unions, the incidence of marital breakdown, the reported incidence of life satisfaction, all of these factors show us that actually cohabitation is not a better thing than marriage and that marriage is not just signing a bit of paper. So we do see that chastity before marriage is rare. I think it's worth emphasising here, especially for us as priests, that we should be aware of this. You know, there is a cultural shift and when a couple comes and they have been chased before their marriage, I think we ought to recognise that, <laughs> sort of congratulate them in a sense, you know, encourage them very much in their 
um, living of a standard so very different from most of their friends. So, in regard to this talk, although the principles of the church's moral teaching are absolutely right and true, if we just talk, you know, in the way that people did in the 60s, we're talking about chaste wedlock, actually, we're not really talking about that anymore. Most couples have already begun in practice to use sex as a way of loving at best. And many people will have known at some time or other in their lives the use of sex simply as a means of, quote, harmless pleasure. And the important thing is that children are not part of the equation here. Using sex as a way of expressing our love, a cohabiting couple or a couple who are in a steady relationship won't normally want there to be a child born. Therefore, the usual introduction for most people, most of your friends, and indeed perhaps of some of you, the introduction to sexual activity will be through various non-copulative means of sexual activity promoted in popular magazines, and when the threshold is crossed, oh yes, I think we'll go to bed together, then it'll be contraceptive sex. And in fact, it will almost be seen as a virtue. If you're responsible, then you'll use contraception. That's, that's the jargon of the times. And so you have a common pattern of modern marriage. It was outlined in a paper I read from um, writer in the Opus Dei position papers, and it's actually... It sounds a little bit cynical, but sadly, very sadly, it's often true. A couple get married in their late 20s or early 30s. They've grown used to contraception as a normal component of sexual activity. At the beginning of their marriage, there'd be a temporary discarding of contraceptive use as a special case in order to have a child and perhaps space the child another two or three years using contraceptives, have the second child, that's enough. So then one or other partner gets sterilized and then you divorce. Sadly, that, that's very often the case. That's, that's not an untypical pattern of modern marriage. So let's look at our culture's approach to, to love then. If we want to start with the business of love, there you've got, I think that's the BBC, is it? The BBC sort of teen thing, you know, about love and boyfriends and all that. This is the culture in which we live and breathe. It doesn't stop there, you know, with steady relationships in its approach to sex. Sex education programs teach children to masturbate as a healthy means of sexual exploration or as the relief of tension. And of course that activity is greatly enhanced if pornography is available. And it is available. Children have televisions in their own room. We know what is shown on Channel 4 late at night, that kind of thing. And of course increasingly children have access to the internet and high quality pornography free of charge. Father Holloway referred to this as the descent into the libido hadn't descended anything like as much as this in Father Holloway's time. It's gone a lot further since then. Now still, love is seen as something that's meant to be noble in the you know, various sort of records, or, or records, that dates me, doesn't it? The music that people get, you know. Um, you know, they talk about love. It's, the idea is that it's meant to be something noble. But it's completely corrupted already in the lives of very many people because of its inevitable link with sexual activity. A standard rule in, in websites like this or in teenage magazines, sex education programs, that kind of thing, the standard rule is don't have sex unless you want to. You'll often see this put down. You know, it sounds terribly responsible, isn't it? You know, don't have sex unless you want to. That's hopeless as a, as a moral kind of thing. The age of consent also is routinely undermined by advice in teenage magazines like this and in sex education programs. They're assuming that um, children under 16 will be having sex. And the obvious corollary is that when you're really, really in love, when you really love each other, then you have to express it physically. Then it's the right time. And the only restraint is that perhaps there's some commitment 
to something a little more than the most animal kind of exploitation. But of course, as we know, drunken party, holiday binge, Club 1830 holiday, well, maybe you can even let that go for a week or two in the, in the interests, again, of harmless fun. Of course, I'm not going to speak much about this, but there is, of course, a homosexual dimension in all of this. The homosexual lobbies also managed to change our culture to the extent that some young people, you know, it's one of the sins, you know, along with smoking or whatever, you know, this is a sin to be homophobic. You know, that, that's, you, if you're a good person, you're, you're kind to, to people and you recognise differences and so on. So there are various different routes to sexual activity. I'm sure, actually, a lot of young people are corrupted by the, the gay lobby because many young people at one time or another in their teenage years have homosexual feelings. That's a normal part of growing up. And the normal part of growing up is that they fade away and, you know, you have a nice um, friendship with a good boy or girl. But often I think, you know, if people then follow the advice of the teenage magazine, ring the lesbian and gay helpline, they could then be sort of drawn into the gay culture and their sexuality confirmed. So as a result, we have what I think you could call a culture of lust. Advertisements of condoms promoted everywhere, pornographic advice for young teachers, sex education that promotes early sexual activity, homosexuality promoted as normal sexual behaviour, marriage reduced to one among many diverse lifestyle options. We might well ask, in the words of the psalmist, how shall the young remain sinless? So I want to look at this in terms of the consequences of contraception in our society. There's a party in Ibiza, I think, there. Um, <clears throat> of course, you know, somebody might say, and people sometimes do, Oh, there's always been these things. They've always happened, you know. Well, of course they have. And they've also always, you know, to take another example, there have always been atrocities and acts of genocide. There have always been atrocities in war. But the 20th century saw a vast growth in the scale of these atrocities. I've been discussing with one or two people during the week, because everybody's rightly horrified by the Nazi Holocaust and the figure of Adolf Hitler. People don't mention Stalin so much. He killed millions more people. 20 years after he died... Students in the West and in England, too, were waving around copies of Chairman Mao, the Little Red Book. I remember it at school. Father Nesbitt was re as resourceful as ever, distributed among us copies of the Little Yellow Book. You see, the Little Red Book was the sayings of Chairman Mao, and he was passing around these, the, the Little Yellow Book, which was the sayings of Jesus Christ. <laughs> but, it, you know, so, so little had been learned since the, the Nazi Holocaust Nine years previously, Mao had come up with what he called the Great Leap Forward. It was an asinine thing. You know, everybody had to produce steel, so nobody produced any food. And agriculture ground to a halt. And it resulted in the deaths of tens of millions of people. The Sichuan province alone, it was estimated that seven million people died of the resulting famine. And at the same time that smart Alex students were flaunting the Little Red Book, Mao was engineering the deaths of tens of millions more in the Cultural Revolution, getting rid of all the intellectuals, or in fact anybody that the Red Guards didn't like. You know. So the sheer scale of the killing was unimaginable. So yes, killing had happened before, atrocities had happened before, this was something new. And I think it's true also in this, the culture of lust. There's been a vast increase in the scale of corruption. The sheer scale of... You know, yes, you had homosexuality, you had prostitution, you had pornography in the days of the Roman Empire. Yes, you had sexual immorality in the Borgia household. Yes, you had some hypocrisy and decadence in the Victorian era. But all of the worst excesses of those periods are now accepted as harmless fun. 
They're not seen as excessive, they're not seen as decadent. And in a way, I think we're worse than the Romans. I mean, if you think of, we mentioned the other day, Luke Romali mentioned the Romans' banquets ending in vomiting and orgies. They were only for the rich and famous. You've now got them in every city centre on a Saturday night. You know, that's, if you join the police, that's your normal work on a Saturday night, is to go down and police these things. You know, you've got all the clubs in Bexley Heath and the different pubs, turn out, everyone's vomiting in the street, going home to have what are effectively orgies. You know, there was a lady in my parish said to me that she'd phoned the police because down at the local field, you know, half a mile from the church, there were five boys lining up to have sex with this girl, and they're all obviously underage. It was consensual. The police came on, they thought it was terribly funny. You know, did you see any distinguishing marks? Ha 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 ha. You know, this is what we've come to. This is worse than the Romans. It's accepted as harmless fun. And so, of course, many ordinary people, obviously good people like yourself, don't get involved in these sorts of things, although you'll be on the fringes of it. You go out with your friends on a Saturday night, you'll, you'll be there, you'll be there in the culture. But very many quite good people do allow their natural affection to develop into sexual activity. And this is sanctioned and encouraged not only by society, but increasingly by quite good people in society. My parents, you know, struggle, should, should my you know, daughter and her boyfriend, you know, share a room when they come home and all that kind of thing. Now, don't misunderstand me. You'll talk later about the personal effects of this. What I want to ask is, how do we get here? How do we get here? Well, first of all, of course, there is a crisis in philosophy. Um, we can trace the crisis to the Reformation, really, and the Enlightenment that followed in its footsteps. We can look at the modernist crisis, the failure of the church in many ways, to respond with a new synthesis of philosophy and theology. But, so that, I mean, that's certainly there. That's, that's perhaps a matter for another lecture. But one of the practical things is the widespread acceptance of contraception. This was mentioned yesterday um, at a practical level. This scale of sexual immorality in the everyday lives of ordinary good people wouldn't have been possible without the promotion of widespread, workable, and easily available contraception. And therefore, at the level of thinking of the ordinary man and woman in the street, you couldn't have got to our present acceptance of sex as a way of loving, you know, as an expression of love. Divorced entirely from the question of having children, you couldn't have got there without contraception. So I think it's opportune here to quote Pope Paul VI again, because he was prophetic. Upright men can even better convince themselves of the solid grounds on which the teaching of the church in this field is based if they care to reflect upon the consequences of methods of artificial birth control. Let them consider, first of all, how wide and easy a road would thus be opened up towards conjugal infidelity and the general lowering of morality. Not much experience is needed in order to know human weakness and to understand that men, especially the young, who are so vulnerable on this point, have need of encouragement to be faithful to the moral law so that they must not be offered some easy means of eluding its observance. He was right. So we have a general lowering of morality. It's no longer, you know, the, the principle of conjugal infidelity, of course, it's still very much with us and causes a lot of sadness. You know, in my parish, many divorces happen because of it. But it was still possible in 1968 to regard most of the sexual immorality related to marriage and its misuse. What it, I think more important is where he spoke of the general lowering of morality, which meant that the normal thing now is to get married <clears throat> sometime after a sexual relationship has already begun. Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry, shouldn't have done that. 
there's a as of course again as I say some people say that there's always been sexual immorality and sex outside of marriage that didn't start with the easy availability and public acceptance of contraception but yet it has to be a willful blindness not to see that since the public availability of contraception the widespread use of sex outside of marriage in all sorts of different ways has become epidemic so I want to look at the um, this sex education fallacy. First of all, I mean, the basic fallacy is it, it hasn't worked yet, so let's try it some more. You know, that it neatly encapsulates the, the failure of public morality. The argument, as you know, will be young people are sexually active anyway, so we must give more sex education to prevent teenage pregnancy and lower the incidence of sexually transmitted infections. Now, after following this policy for several years, decades, the incidence of teenage pregnancy and sexually transmitted infections has shot up. The answer? More and better sex education. It's like Mao. I mean, it really is. It's like some communist mantra. Then, of course, we had the question, you know, don't need to say much about this. We talked about this yesterday. You could make more or less the same pr um, point with the promotion of condoms as the solution to the AIDS problem. The key question isn't some sneering BBC debate on microscopic holes in the condoms. The key question is, has it worked? Has this public policy worked? The answer is no, it hasn't worked. And so, you know, should we not be trying something else? Should we not look at where abstinence is promoted and conjugal fidelity? And, well, actually, that does work. So, well, we need to look at whether there's perhaps another interest. And here, a little sideline. I thought it might be of interest to you. Um, there is also a commercial angle in all of this. So let's look at the um, annual report, if it comes up. There's the hourglass there. My little nephew, actually, he's only four, and he's working on the computer. There's a new thing children complain to their parents about. Mummy, mummy, it's the hourglass again. <laughs> <laughs> now this is, the, this is the annual report for SSL International. S and... Uh, as you can see here, let's see, there's their brands. You see the main brand there is Durex. They also own Skoll Footwear, Shoal Footwear. They recently disposed of um, Marigold Gloves. What I want to look at, um, first of all, let's see, that's right. Let's go to page 22 here. Let's have a look at the, the directors of this company. You see, you've got Gary Watts, Ian Adamson, Ian Martin. We've got a picture of them, I think, here. Yeah, there they are. That's all of them. You know, they've been in the, they're these guys that go around various different companies. You know, they've been executive director of somewhere else before and all that. Now, the interesting page, of course, would be page 29, which is the um, director's emoluments. <coughs> now, bear in mind, of course, these are in thousands of pounds. So, in Martin, there, salary 175,000, 47,000 benefits. Gary Watts, there, 368,000. 115,000 bonus at Christmas, 92,000 bonus. He's on just over half a million a year. And these, you've got other guys here who are still drawing money from the company under contracts. Buck and there. Look, there's a Slater there. Remember that name? There's one of the Slaters involved. Then you've got, if we go on a bit further, you've got the director's share option schemes. Um, so Watts here, he has... Now, the, the, what, what this is, if, you, if you're not familiar with these things... You, you get the option to buy and sell shares at a certain price. So the exercise price is the price at which you are allowed to sell these shares. And you can sell them between um, March 04 and 
March 08, these ones, 75,698 at a price of £4.83 each. It's nice work if you can get it. Nice work if you can get it. Now, you know, and so on. So these, are, these guys are making millions, personally millions, out of this. Now, let's have a look at their policy. You see, therefore, you need to, you need to sell more condoms. You know, in order to make money, you've got to sell more condoms. You've got to have a marketing strategy. So that's, what's going to be the marketing strategy for this year? All right, this is the annual report. They're going to say how we're going to... How are we going to sell more condoms in the coming year? Page eight, I think, got the marketing strategy for the investors. Our strategy for growth continues to focus on recruiting new users to the brand by targeted advertising and distribution at the 16 to 24 age range. For the first time, Durex joined forces with Topman, a UK fashion retailer for young men, to provide a new distribution channel for quality condoms. Right. That's what's going on. New users. You know, you think you were talking about you know, a, a car or something, or you know, a new form of ice lolly. Yeah, this is new users for condoms. That means you've got to get more people having sex between the ages of 16 and 24 so that you can use your condoms. Right? This is what's going on. So I thought I'd just have a little interlude there, because people sometimes think you're being cynical if you talk about commercial interests. Now, of course, one of the things that bothers people, and obviously we need to talk about this week, is the business of the link with abortion. You know, it's important that there is a link between the contraceptive culture and abortion. And I think one of the first things to say, and this was commented to me by someone in my parish, every, every now and again, you know, you've got a school and they say, oh, there were six girls in that school were pregnant last year, you know, and had babies. Or, in, you know, in your Catholic school, there might be one or two in the year. I think it's very important for us as priests and as Catholics to avoid being censorious about that. You know, obviously, it would be better if um, you know, they were married and so on and so forth. But every one of those girls has the first option given to them and urged upon them quite strongly is to have a termination. You know, if you're pregnant and you're 16 or 15 or 14, you go to the doctor. The first thing you'll be you're strongly urged to do as an act of responsible you know, citizenship is to have your baby killed. So the girls who are pregnant in the school... They've actually chosen, you know, it was probably with some degree of courage, not to do that. So it's important for us to remember that. You know, so sometimes we can be stuck again with sort of attitudes, um, you know, perhaps making the assumptions of the 60s or earlier. Most, all of these girls will have had abortion offered to them as an easy option. And in fact, abortion will be a temptation for very many people, even for those in long term relationships. If the relationship was one in which sex was a way of loving, a way of expressing our love, nobody said anything about children. We can always convince ourselves that a child will be better off out of this dreadful world and so on. We can't really look after them. There's sort of soothing platitudes that will be given to us. They won't last very long. There's a very strong motivation. Being a parent for the first time is a bit scary. And so there'll be a strong motivation to avoid the responsibility of parenthood. After all, the baby doesn't remain a baby for very long. So a lot of, again, quite good people will be tempted to have an abortion. It's, it's there, it's an option, it's available. And it's the inevitable consequence of the condom culture. The acceptance of abortion is one of the practical consequences of our contraceptive culture. If sex is a way of loving, if it can be divorced from having children, society will find excuses to get rid of the children conceived ac accidentally, even despite beautiful 3D pictures of babies in the womb. That baby, but that's eight weeks. That's eight weeks. So you just 
realise that you know you've missed the period and a couple of weeks after. And then the pill. That's important here because the pill is very widely used. It has an abortifacient dimension. Contraceptives which are hormonal in action work in two ways, and this is on the medical notes given to the doctors who prescribe them. You know, the, the, the drug companies know this, the doctors are advised this. First of all, they work either to prevent fertilization or to prevent implantation of the fertilized ovum. In other words, to cause an early abortion. The so-called morning-after pill, of course, euphemistically termed emergency contraception, is nothing of the sort, is not contraceptive in its effect, except perhaps occasionally in, in a fluke circumstances. It, its primary action is clearly intended to be abortive fashion. So if you're using the pill and you're having sex, then you're taking part in this whole business. And lots of people are compromised in that way. Then there's also the epidemic of chlamydia, um, Josephine was here yesterday, made a couple of points there. She's very concerned about this whole business of hormonal contraception prescribed so easily to teenagers because she has to treat an increasing number of girls who present with chlamydia. And the incidence in some areas is actually a significant percentage of the entire population of teenage girls. I think Hammersmith is something like over 20% in Hammersmith. They actually had all the statistics of the exact number of girls in the area. Enormous numbers of people getting this infection, which of course can be, you know, can result in sterility, in, in infertility. Although Josephine asked me, she said, do reassure everybody, the first infection doesn't usually result in that. You know, so the first time off, you know, usually doesn't result in infertility. But if you get it again, or, you know, two or three times, then the likelihood of infertility increases. Then you've got ectopic pregnancies, another result of um, the use of the contraceptive pill because it slows down the passage of the ovum through the fallopian tube, so often the ovum is fertilized within the fallopian tube. That's a life-threatening condition. You have to go to hospital, it's an emergency operation. If you don't have it, you die. And inevitably means the destruction of one of the tubes. Well, you know, you've got two tubes and you lost one. Right? So that, again, is one of the causes of increasing infertility. But I think the, point, the main point is that the pill is thoroughly anti-life. It's thoroughly anti-life. And an important thing to, to remember is that it's increasingly prescribed to regulate menstruation. And there's a new, the new big thing on the market, apparently, is the Marina IUD, intrauterine device, one of the a small coil, but it slowly releases progesterone, so it's got hormonal action as well. And they're often sold to women on the, you know, the idea, because nobody wants to have periods nowadays and so on, and that you can regulate them. But... There's a, there's a public policy going on here. The doctor is, you know, can tick you off as covered for contraception. One of the, th one of the things on the checklist, you know, are you covered? Are you covered for contraception? If you're a young girl, um, you know, they'll ask you, are you sexually active? And if you say no, oh, everybody says that. You know, and you, you'll be covered for contraception. And the excuse for giving it will be to, to regulate menstruation. So we, you know, it's another part of the, the whole culture encroaching on everybody's life. And there's... IVF, three little eight-cell embryos there. This, we, we, of course, you know, people, for one reason or another, infertile and want to have children unable to do so. Now, Roseanne mentioned yesterday about the, some of the options that are available. Pro-life NFP counsellors help enormously uh, in teaching the youth of the natural cycles to maximise the likelihood of conception. Sometimes, of course, couples adopt children Sadly, of course, this is increasingly difficult in England, again, because of public policy. There was a recent initial meeting for prospective adopters in Lambeth, 
And this guy went along, and he thought, or oh, perhaps this is the sort of second choice group, because, um, you know, everybody's like me, you know, I'm, you know, if it was homosexual. It was actually the first choice. They were all the prospective adopters were homosexual. And if you're a, a normal heterosexual couple, and you, you know, if you're a Christian couple and you have certain Christian values, you may well find it very difficult to persuade people that you are a suitable couple to adopt. Like my sister's adopted five children, and it was only the first child she adopted from within England, <clears throat> the Down syndrome boy, um, and after that she's been elsewhere. Actually adopted one from Inner Mongolia in China, from the Chinese one-child policy. There's a little um, Jacinta. She always speaks, of course, of her early memories. Jane, you know, talks to the children a lot about their own background and history and family and so on. And Jacinta remembered the Chinese girls. Chinese girls. What about the boys? Of course, there weren't any boys in the orphanage. The one-child policy in that particular area didn't have to kill the children, but they all had to go into the orphanage. There was only the girls that go in because the boys could work on the farm. And... The policy, the adoption policy, she, she described to me in England, said there were people who are so Marxist and fanatical about the business of adoption that they consider it would be better for that child to be sat on a potty stool in front of a television tied there all day long than to have the terrible fate of being adopted by a Western couple. So you've got IVF here. It's, it's morally unacceptable. Again, we talked a bit about this the other day. Um, we can understand the motives for people seeking this, but we do need to make it clear. Um, IVF is where, first of all, the husband masturbates in order to produce sperm for IVF. The sperm is then tested, you get various embryos like this, and one or other of them will be taken away, it will be, will be killed. So you're killing embryos, and you're also eliminating the sexual act, as what we discussed the other day, that the child, for its own dignity, has the right to be conceived through the marital act. So IVF is morally unacceptable for us. Good film, actually, on all this business. If you watch the film Gattaca, Gattaca is very good. You get the couple, and they're there with the doctor, and they, you know, had to select the embryo. He's saying, well, he said, this one, yeah, this one would be really good. He'd have a bit of musical ability. For an extra $3,000, you know, we can sort of make sure of that, you know, this kind of thing. And in an outtake, in the outtakes, you get the DVD version, the outtakes, it carries on a bit, because the mother then says, well, hey... What about the others? And, oh, I don't know. Smaller than a grain of sand, my dear. Smaller than a grain of sand. Don't worry about them. But the question was raised. You see. So, it's what we have here with IVF. You know, it's strange, isn't it? Most of public policy is telling us not to conceive. IVF, very expensive procedure, trying to achieve conception in a different way. They show that the floodgates morally have been opened. Sexual activity is so divorced from its true meaning that we're prepared to countenance the formation of children without sex. The whole moral collapse is even clearer. Sex is for pleasure. Children come about in some other way, either when you do this strange, weird thing of having sex without using contraception, or, if that doesn't work, you arrange to get it done in the laboratory. And then, of course, you can achieve the equality of homosexual couples. The generally accepted route is that the male homosexual provides sperm for the female homosexual couple to have a child, and doubtless we'll soon see reciprocal arrangements become commonplace, whereby perhaps the second child or a clone is given for a dog, and so on and so forth. Reminds me of a, a scene from the film Gladiator. Remember the bit where um, Maximus says this? This is not it. This is 
Well, Jesus Christ had a vision that was love. And this is not it. This is not it. Yeah, a little interlude for you. <laughs> we are involved in a spiritual battle, for our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore take up the armour of God, so that you can resist on the evil day and stand fast with all things perfect. Stand fast, therefore, with your loins girt in truth and clothed with the breastplate of justice and your feet shod in preparation for the gospel of peace. Always carry the shield of faith on which you can extinguish all the blazing arrows of the most evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That's St. Paul was speaking to you and to me. Just the same kind of culture as there was in Corinth, only worse, we're facing now. That's the advice of St. Paul. So, the civilization of love. First of all, we need a genuine cultural revolution. Obviously, you hesitate to use the phrase. Mao used it as, you know, in this ghastly, awful slaughter of people. But there's a terrible mistake in first principles. That's the point, and it has to be changed. We have to do the opposite. We have to do something else. And the first principle here in the culture of death is that sex is used as a way of loving or an expression of love. So we need to look at our own fundamental principle, which is... Sex is for having children within a state of love, which is marriage. That's what it means, and that's what it is. And so also, any deliberate use of sex, which excludes children, will always be wrong. And that's what the church has taught. That's what the church has always taught. Before 1930, it's what every decent Christian believed as well. It's not just a Catholic thing. All Christians believe this. So, how do we live this? You know, we have, in a certain sense, to get real, don't we? And we look at original sin and disordered desire. You've got a deep, emotionally intense love between two young people. Doesn't it naturally tend to sexual expression? In terms of our fallen human nature, yes, it's very likely to go that way if it's not checked. But we believe in original sin. And rather than being stupid old fogies who didn't understand love, the fathers and doctors of the church were actually quite down to earth. They did understand fallen human nature. So we're wounded in our physical appetites, first of all. Because of our fallen nature, which is wounded, our physical appetites and associated desires will be disordered. They will be potentially greedy, selfish, and potentially addictive. We can see it in the misuse of food and drink, and it's very clear in the misuse of sexual desire. But in the beginning, it was not so. When our Lord spoke of the Mosaic concession on divorce, he said, in the beginning, it was not so. It's also true, in the beginning, in the original plan of God, according to the creation of the first human person, sex is for children within a state of loving, which is marriage. And the overdevelopment of sexual physical desire is a consequence and effect of the wound of original sin, which is passed on to us. So we need to counteract it. What we need to do is bring our physical appetite back under control of the spiritual soul. And the remedy, that's the remedy for it. And our spiritual soul is in harmony with our environment, with the environment of the living God himself. You can only achieve that through grace received in prayer, penance, and charity, especially through the reception of the sacraments. 
Every person will need to exercise self-control in this area. It's called the virtue of continence or self-control. So we have, on the basis of this first principle, a Catholic vision of love. We are more than just mammals. I miss one of the did they quote that song? You know, you and me, baby. Or, you know, did, did anybody quote that yet? No, right. You and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals, so do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. You know that song? I, it really, I, you know, I want to throw something at the speakers when they play. You're sitting in a restaurant having a meal. I play this insulting rubbish at you. We're, we are more than just mammals. We have, and that's part of the confusion, is that people do think we're just mammals. Yeah, ultimately, we're, yeah, we're, it's just the physical thing. We're more than that. We're body and soul. And our soul can control, through the power of the soul, we control what we do with our bodies. We can say no. We can live a better standard. We can love properly. And love is first and foremost a spiritual human activity. Love, to love somebody else, first of all, is to seek their good, to act and speak in such a way as to seek what is good for them. We were talking at breakfast about the mental capacity bill and this whole business of best interests. Somebody's best interests aren't necessarily what they want at any given time. So equally, when you love somebody, to love them isn't necessarily always to do what they want at any given time. It's to do what's right and good for them and to be generous in doing that. Love seeks what's good and true for the other person. Because that's perhaps a little bit of a philosophical approach to it. It doesn't do much to fill in the colours of, of young love. But we might perhaps speak better in terms of the love of God as well. When we love somebody else, what we're doing is we thrill to the image of God in that person. You know, we can love God through, in that way. You see some, some wonderful person you love very much, a devout person would give heartfelt thanks and praise to God for them. Bless God with all their heart for creating such a wonderful person. That joy of, of loving, that's what that's our, it should be our response to it in prayer. And true love is also part of the natural law. I'll speak a bit more about this. But we also, before we go, get there, we also need prudence. Because we all need to control our sexual desires, we will in our own relationships always need to be prudent. You know, we need to think, well, yeah, this is the way I am in my fallen human nature. Therefore, there are certain things, if we do them together, we're going to end up in bed together. You know, let's be honest, we know this. And so we need to be prudent and honest with ourselves to observe some boundaries, not to touch another person in a way that we know is going to excite them, not to speak to them in a way that we know is going to excite them. Good rule, Found the next bit of the um, summer break, we're talking about prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Father Nesbitt had a great quote from the book of Proverbs, summed up the virtue of prudence. The prudent man knows where he is going. And in your loving, you should know where you're going. Where is this going? Where are we going? Look, you know, it's quite obvious in some cases where this is leading. So let's go somewhere else. What have we got next? Oh, Christian marriage, because you have a much deeper understanding of Christian marriage. It has a profound effect on marriage and preparation for marriage. So if you, if you see loving in this way, marriage isn't a celebration some years after the sexual relationship has already begun. Marriage is a choice made with eyes wide open. Eyes wide open. It's a determination to love whatever the cost, whatever happens in the future, and the joy of choosing together to begin a family if that's God's will. It also gives a true context to what we can now call the marriage act. Sex becomes something much more reverent. It becomes the marriage act. 
has entered into as part of a relationship chosen carefully by the couple, witnessed by their family and friends, consecrated before God. Because the love is already there and firmly chosen as an act of the will as a permanent state, then it's already been subjected to self-control and self-denial. Any couple that are engaged are going to be tempted to go to bed together. So they've already been self-control and self-denial. That's part of the relationship right at the beginning. And sex takes its proper place, not as an act of love in itself, but something carried out within an already loving and selfless relationship that's solemnly established. And its primary purpose is the creation of children in cooperation with God for this world and for eternity. And it will be no surprise that such marriages very rarely break down. But look at the incidents of breakdown of marriages. We get all the statistics if you want. Those marriages don't break down. And we talked a little bit about natural family planning. Yes, the church allows natural family planning. It's quite different from contraception. It's quite different in practice. We talked about it in principle. In practice, a couple who begin to use natural family planning, if they've been using contraception before, it will improve and change their married relationship. And that's why, you know, sometimes people say, well, all these people who teach natural family planning, they've got loads of children. Yes, because they've actually seen marriage and family in a different way. Natural family planning is itself ennobling. It will change any marriage for the better. And again, it's no surprise that the divorce rate among couples who use NFP is minuscule. So we also need to have a revolution in our own standards as well, as well as having a sort of cultural revolution. We... Well, as everybody else changing, we've got to change. It can't just be other people. First of all, Christian marriage is a highly civilized thing. It sets a high standard, but it's not impossibly high. Men and women have lived this vision of love for centuries. In fact, you could regard Christian marriage as one of the greatest contributions of Christianity to human civilization. In England, Christian marriage replaced the ideal of marriage by rape and abduction and the establishment of a woman as one's property. Then there came Christian marriage, men and women equal, you know, a free consent given. So the standard that we're talking about is a higher and nobler way of loving, yes, but it's, it's worth living. It affects the way you look at men and women. From an early age, as we know, girls are taught to dress up sexy, you look at the year six disco, boys are taught to ogle them, girls are taught to look for fit blokes, control them through the rationing of sexual pleasure. It's easy to fall into that way of life and end up, as many people do, in a sort of bitter and sniping partnership that's inherently brittle and breaks under the stress of the first child or some other stress, you know, another relationship, somebody else who looks better. Even the signing of a bit of paper at the register office can break up those partnerships. But the vision of love that we're talking about is true to our nature and it's true to Christ. The civilization of love is the undermining of the whole concept of speed dating online tests for sexual compatibility in the cattle market of the average club. And we do, of course, hope that the summer session is an oasis in all of this and offers a respite from that way of living and lusting and the opportunity to meet other people in a spiritual context. There's nothing we would want more than that. It's a higher and nobler way of life. But, of course, being realistic, as we are, and when we fall, remember that lovely hymn, Sweetheart of Jesus, and when we fall, sweetheart, oh, love us still. It's a problem for very many people today. It's important to recognize, not only that these are good standards, but they can be recovered, they can be discovered, even if you have lived in a different way from the start. Many young people have fallen into sin of one sort or another. 
the incidence of sexual addiction is a growing problem, mainly because of the availability of pornography on the internet. Because people actually become addicted to sex in such a way that they actually, you know, they lose their job, they break up their family and so on and so forth. As we've seen, all of the sexual sins tend in one direction, the culture of death, where ultimately even human life can be destroyed. So the remedy, first remedy, is the sacrament of confession. It's a wonderful sacrament. If you have particular habits of sin, you need to find a confessor who is kind and understanding but doctrinally sound. Go to confession weekly if you can. It's Catholic teaching that all sexual sins are grave matter, and therefore if they're committed with deliberate intent are mortal sins. But it's also Catholic teaching that addiction and compulsion can lessen full consent. So you need somebody who knows that and understands it and believes it, basically. You don't want somebody who says, oh, it's not a sin, you're just part of growing up. That won't help you. Somebody who understands and gives you absolution and penance and encourages you to, to live better but to come back to confession again if you fall again. That's, that's what we need in this area. And we also need to be honestly aware of the occasions of sin. In other words, the circumstances in which we know it's likely that we will be tempted to sin and we avoid them wherever it's possible to do so. And in the modern world, of course, it's not always possible to avoid those occasions, so we should neutralize them, or in terms of moral theology, we make them more remote by making short prayers from the heart, by especially asking Our Lady's help, seeking the company of good, chaste people who will help us to be chaste. So it does transform our lives. When um, Pope Paul VI published Humanae Vitae, um, it, there was an American priest, the news got to India of an American priest who claimed, oh, many Catholics won't pay attention to the encyclical. If they did, we'd be back in the dark ages. Now, Raj Mohan Gandhi was um, the, the, the grandson of um, the famous Gandhi. And he said, well, what this American priest said, his remark reminds one of the fellow who stepped out into the fresh air after a long spree and asked, what is this strange smell? I think that's true. You know, we look at this vision of love. It's fresh air for the soul. It's sunshine for the soul. Because Christ is the sunshine of the soul. Christ teaches us the real meaning of human love. We recognize it as fresh air because it is written into our hearts. It's not a church rule. This isn't something that the Vatican made up. It's written into our hearts from the beginning. That's what we call the natural law. That's how it was in the beginning. Yes, it's been obscured by sin, and we don't always get it right, but Christ taught it. So in Christ, what you have is you have the natural law in our hearts, and the living God himself, who implanted that in our hearts, teaches us explicitly in human language. It's amazing. There's one law of wisdom in God through creation, through the creation of the human person, through all the writings of the Old Testament. This is God speaking. This is God's wisdom. And it's in our hearts. We know that what's, what's right and wrong in this area. But because we're weak and sinful, and we fell away from it and started making up our own rules, Christ makes it explicit. I say to you, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. That's Christ, the living God, making explicit in human language the natural law that God has written on our hearts. So Christ promises us life and life more abundant. Christ calls us to this thing because he loves us. Remember that thing where when you love somebody, you don't always do exactly what they want at any given time. 
Christ knows that sometimes we want things that are bad for us. Remember that thing where he said, which, which of you would give his son a stone if he asked for bread, or a scorpion if he asked for an egg? God won't do that. And he won't give us a scorpion if we ask for a scorpion either. You know, if we ask for bad things, God won't give us them. He'll only give us things that are good for us. He'll only teach what is good for us because he knows what's good for us because he made us. And he made us to love, and he made us to love in this way. And with all the love of his sacred heart, Christ wants us to grow and to flourish in his image, to thrill to his life, and in fact to share it. I came that they might have life and life more abundant. I'd like to finish with a little prayer. I got there, that's an image. Who knows, who knows what that icon is? I did this with the children early last week. <laughs> St. Maria Goretti, an icon of St. Maria Goretti. It's rather nice. Just say the prayer. O oh my God, teach me to love others with the purity of your Holy Mother. Give me the grace to resist firmly every temptation to impure thoughts, words, or actions. Teach me always to love with generosity and goodness, to respect myself and others in the way I act, and to reverence the way that you have given us for the creation of new life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.